You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Josh Swartz, COO of PopDog. Josh, welcome to the show. Great to be here, James. Yeah, glad we get to do this. We are here in PopDog HQ in sunny Santa Monica. It's a beautiful day, as it always is here in LA. We don't have a great view here, but uh, other than that, I uh, can't complain. So tell us about your entree into the media business. You graduated from law school and then served as general counsel to iFilm, a video sharing website focused on independent films during its early days. How did that opportunity come about? Well, that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I was very fortunate. I graduated in 1999 from law school at a time when Internet 1.0 was in full bloom. I spent six long weeks at a law firm and realized billing my life in six-minute increments was not going to be a future for me and was very fortunate to be afforded the opportunity to join a video startup here in L.A. We raised $60 million basically on a cocktail napkin uh, business plan and proceeded to be really a forerunner to what is now sort of YouTube and uh, user-generated content. And how did you meet the rest of the iFilm team? Introduced through a mutual friend. They were looking for someone to do business affairs. I knew absolutely nothing about how internet video was distributed. I remember my second day there being in a panic and fear as they dropped three distribution deals on my desk. They said, we need to get our videos in front of Yahoo, AOL, and MSN. So please go mark these up and talk to them by the end of the week. I called up all my friends who knew something about online video and tried to get up to speed really quickly. But it was really trial by fire and an amazing experience. Experience. Right into the deep end. Very yeah. good. So after two years with iFilm, you joined Wasserman as COO and later went on to become president of Relativity Sports. What attracted you to the sports industry? I've been a lifelong sports fan my entire life. I grew up playing basketball and baseball. I grew up watching all the major sports. And so for me, mirroring passion with work was an opportunity. A, I couldn't pass up. B, I was doing it with a longtime childhood friend of mine and have spent the last 16, 17 years specifically in the sports industry, although now it's much more focused on gaming and esports. So at that time, after over a decade as an operator, you became an investor, right? Serving as managing partner of a venture fund investing in sports and sports media properties. What was the experience like on the other side of the table? Completely different, right? Operating a business on a day-to-day basis, your priorities are very, very focused on making sure the business performs, making sure that the company continues to grow. As an investor, you can dabble in lots of different investments in different companies and different sectors. So, you know, for someone like me who constantly needs some sort of intellectual stimulation, it was actually really gratifying because I could spend some time thinking about a ski rental business in Japan or a mixed martial arts promotion in Hong Kong, as well as some of the more traditional properties. So it was a really great experience. And then in 2016, you co-founded Catalyst Sports and Media, an advisory and talent representation firm focused on basketball, football, and of course, esports. What yeah. inspired you to take the entrepreneurial leap? Well, for me, I, my partner at Catalyst, Happy Walters, who's an NBA agent and before that, a music manager, a really long and interesting history in the entertainment space. We kind of looked at each other back in 2014. At that point, he had made an investment in Major League Gaming, which was subsequently acquired by Activision Blizzard. And he said, look, we can continue to do this for the next n number of years and fight in what is basically a zero-sum game and what I mean by that is you know we're in competition with C 
CAA and my old firm Wasserman and others. And if they take a client from us and we take a client from them, that's no one gains any lunch money, at least the universe doesn't. And so for us thinking about where emerging media and where, you know, changes in digital consumption patterns would go was some place we wanted to invest a lot of our time and not surprisingly. And I think quite cleverly, we ended up looking very, very hard at the esports category back in 15. I spent a fair amount of time doing diligence on it because I didn't believe the theory of people watching other people play video games was something that uh, was a commercially viable enterprise. But I quickly realized that it wasn't just a niche property or a niche content category and had much more sort of broader based appeal. What ultimately convinced you? Uh, to be clear, I was at a League of Legends match in Seoul and I was watching on the screen. I don't play League of Legends, so I'm not a gamer in that regard. It was indecipherable on the screen to me. Fans were cheering. They had thunder sticks. The players looked like celebrities. I didn't even know the match ended un until the confetti came down and people stood up and cheered. And so our host at the time came and said, what do you think? And I said, well, this looks great, but I don't have any idea what's going on. He's like, well, why didn't you put your headphones on, dummy? And I said, well, what's through the headphones? He's like, that's the English language translation of the, of the game cast. And I was like, okay. So by the time game three rolled around, although I still didn't really understand understand what was happening. And we had a uniquely good casting duo who was doing the event. Uh, it became readily apparent to me that I could sit in front of a TV or a screen and actually consume this, which made it go from, again, a niche vertical where only hardcore gamers could really appreciate to something that had broader mainstream appeal, something that actually could be an entertainment property. And from then on, I was in love both from a business perspective and then also from a just sort of a content perspective. So you recognize the opportunity in esports and the philosophy became rather than compete over a fixed pie in the traditional sports world. Let's help grow the pie in the esports space because it's such an emerging opportunity. Yeah, the analog we like to use, we got involved very early when I was at Wasserman in the action sports space. So this is right as X Games was sort of happening. There was a ton of interest from endemic brands and starting to get interest from non-endemic brands. And so we kind of look at esports the same way in many respects, meaning, you know, surfing and skateboarding and motocross riding are all action sports, but those fan bases are dramatically different. And the same thing is true in esports. Each content category, each title, each community has its unique characteristics, which makes it a fun puzzle. So are you a gamer now? I have two young daughters who game. So I game with them and I game to stay current, but I stink. So <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, Catalyst joined the PopDog family of brands late last year, and you now serve as the group COO. For those who aren't familiar, what does PopDog do and what is the opportunity that you're tackling? Sure. Uh, the most obvious consumer-facing side of our business is a management company called Loaded, uh, where we represent and manage the careers of gaming influencers and content creators, some of whom I'm sure your audience has heard of, uh, Ninja, Dr. Lupo, Shroud, Tim the Tatman, and the like. So that's a fairly simple business, at least academically. In practice, it's more complicated. But academically, we try to secure the best deals we can for them across multiple channels channels and verticals, but also really try to help build their career outside of just getting them an incremental dollar. Yeah, thinking about the long-term prospects of the talent and creating longevity for their career. Yeah, and not all talent is created the same, uh, you know, without naming names. Uh, there's some talent that we have that's really suitable for potential crossover into more mainstream opportunities. And we have some talent that will likely not get out of a narrow cast vertical, but will be extremely successful in that narrow cast vertical. So it's an interesting challenge as we look at platforms that are starting to fragment, as we look at advertisers starting to come in. You know, ultimately, a catalyst, our sort of ethos was to try to build a bridge between 
between the traditional sports and media space and this emerging growth field. I think we did that. We specifically stayed out of the talent representation business, which ironically was our core DNA in basketball and in other sports, specifically because we wanted to work more on the management side and represent the teams and the leagues. Because I think that's as a starting point where we could really drive dollars into the space. And I think we did a good job advising pro sport team owners, people we've had relationships with for many, many years. And so what does that balance look like today? Where does Loaded and PopDog fit into the broader kind of media ecosystem in terms of traditional management, but also agency representation for going out and getting deals? Yeah, so we are a traditional management company. So we go out and we source deals for our talent. Uh, That is what Loaded does. They do it very, very well. Hopefully I can give them some help and guidance into being able to scale because they have been successful almost solely on the backbreaking work and bootstrapping work that they've done recruiting talent. And so, you know, we joke that our inbox is so full on a day-to-day basis, we don't do a lot of outbound. That's obviously going to change. And I think you'll see a market improvement in the non-endemic sponsorships and activations that we do for our talent going forward. What does that competitive landscape look like? Are there, you know, additional new talent management firms that are emerging? Is it the traditional players like Wasserman, WME, CAA getting into the esports game? What do you think? It's a mix of both. I go to sleep at night thinking that next time I wake up in the morning, there will be three other people entering the space. So that is my fundamental assumption. It's a fast growing, interesting space. So naturally it will attract competition. We're still in the early days. So even if all those players came in, and by the way, some of them already have, but my expectation is they all will at some point, there's still enough of an expanding pie and a growing universe that I think everyone can be successful. There will come a point where stasis is achieved and we'll start looking more like a zero-sum game, but we are still a long way from that. What do you think is the greatest challenge facing the esports space at the moment? Well, I would make the distinction between esports and gaming, right? So esports in particular is undergoing a really interesting evolution from a market perspective. There was a flood of money, some of which we were responsible for, that has come into the space on the team side. I think that the thesis that esports teams closely resemble professional sports franchises is a very imperfect analog uh, in many, many ways. And I think teams that rely on that fundamental analogy are going to be disadvantaged on a go-forward basis. So I think that's number one. Number two, I think a market correction as a general proposition is probably coming and a good thing for the industry. There was a lot of fear of missing out that happened that is still happening and probably unsupported by fundamental financials. And so we'll see, you know, what the next six to 12 months looks like as more data comes in on the franchise leagues about viewership and activation uh, and engagement. At the end of the day, it's pretty expensive to run an esports team, right? When you think about all of the coaching, the travel, player salaries, you know, the the specialties that you have to recruit in terms of, you know, having masseuses and nutritionists and all the things that go into maintaining a professional athlete, that's challenging to do at scale. And, And right now, the monetization is still it's still growing, right? There's a long way for esports to go in terms of media rights, sponsorship opportunities. Obviously, there's a lot of interest, and there are endemic and certainly now non-endemic advertisers coming into the space. But it still seems like there's a bit of a gap, as you said, to how do you make this work financially? Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a good observation. I think there is a interesting, I think evolution is the right way to put it. There's an interesting evolution for these teams as they start to understand the infrastructure costs. I think that's the one way where having a pro sport team financial sponsor or partner or owner is actually advantageous because they understand infrastructure really, really well. They understand how to put butts in seats. They have training facility. 
employees. They have doctors and some of the and chefs and nutritionists on staff. Certainly, if you have a pro sports team, you do. Uh, so I think in that way, it's beneficial to have a partner that way. But I think in many other ways, right? You know, selling out Madison Square Garden or Staples Center for a Wednesday afternoon match between you know two Overwatch teams or two League of Legends teams is unlikely to happen anytime soon. And so you have to th- start thinking about revenue streams that pro sport teams aren't dependent on. And I think sponsorship and media rights as a general proposition have a long way to go. I think esports teams will start looking a little more like agencies and MCNs than they will like pro sports teams pretty soon, at least most of them. What can esports teams and, and overall in the broader industry do to attract more of a mainstream audience? Do you think that the franchise system is helping? Are there other approaches or tactics that could be you know, helpful there? Yeah, I think a lot of those cross currents are helpful, right? I don't think there's no, there's not a magic bullet where, you know, everyone's going to wake up one day and 240 million people are going to be consuming an esports tournament on, on linear television. But I do think making it more accessible, there's some things you can do from a tactical level. And, and we really try to work with our influencers on this. There's a reason our roster is primarily populated with brand friendly, family friendly folks. And that's, you know, that's a testament to both the character of the people we work with, but also a dedication to understand that like trying to broaden your audience will require you not to be a toxic personality. There are plenty of wildly popular toxic personalities in the space, but generally we stay away from them because uh, it's not something we want to have our brands associated with. Zooming out and thinking more broadly about the overall gaming space, what is something that you're excited about today? You've got you know, Google's Stadia announcement and excitement around cloud gaming. You've got certainly all the other phenomenons happening with the new generation of consoles, VR and AR and gaming. What are the things that you get fired up about? I mean, the, the thing that's amazing about this space is the limitless supply of content that's coming through, right? So if you just think about the more more games will be published, certainly if you include mobile in 2019 than in the last 10 years combined, right? So the supply of games to play and entertainment opportunities is not in any danger of drying up anytime soon. Having said that, a good 99% of those games have no sort of commercial, long-term commercial impact. Having said that, I think the one thing that makes gaming different from um, you know, pro sports leagues. We talk about it all the time. Like you and I, James, you and I could start a basketball league. We could compete with the NBA. We will likely be unsuccessful competing with the NBA, but we don't have to pay the Naismith family a royalty for the rules of basketball. When you're talking about media rights around gaming and esports, you have a third party called the game publisher who owns the underlying IP. Some publishers are extremely hospitable to building ecosystems without their uh, direct support. Others take complete control over that ecosystem. And so I think as you see, proliferation of games, the good news is the supply is still there. And so the ability to create content, the ability to do interesting things with that IP, I think will continue. If there was a world where there's only two publishers or two developers and only four games, I think that's when you start running into kind of a natural ceiling about what's going on. There's a couple things that I have always found particularly fascinating about the gaming space. Number one is that you have this kind of low barrier to competition. Anyone can launch a game studio and create a title that takes the world by storm, as we've seen with PUBG and Fortnite in the last two years, right? That's pretty cool. And then the fact that gaming went from this counterculture niche audience thing to now being completely mainstream, and I think in large part that's due to mobile gaming, that the casual gamer now has 
one of the world's most powerful gaming devices in their pocket as a result of advances in you know, smartphone technology. Yeah, the proliferation of mobile is clearly in the near term the most interesting sort of growth driver around the industry. I differentiate that from esports because there hasn't truly been a successful esport created from a mobile game. That may or may not change. We've been talking about VR for the last five or six years and still the content is a desert, at least as it relates to games. So certainly mobile is going to be a huge, huge driver going forward. In fact, you'll see Loaded will be announcing a couple of mobile publisher deals over the next couple months that, you know, hopefully we can continue to build on that because that's a content category with almost limitless supply of games and almost limitless flow of funds. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. What are the publisher partnerships? So, you know, I think the Apex launch, although not a mobile game specifically, was a really great case study for us, right? So I think EA did a really good job of developing that campaign. We worked hand in hand with them. Most of the influencers that helped launch that game were loaded clients, not all, but certainly most. Many of our big guys, big content creators played. I think that's a very good blueprint. Now, caveat, you have to have a good game. The game stinks, doesn't matter, right? The game will, will come and go. But if you have a good game and to get the content creators engaged at an early stage so that they have a hand in actual game development, I think that's sort of the next evolution of this, where content creators can get ahead of the development cycle, help fashion the game, and know that when it's launched, it's a game they love, it's a game they're good at, and it's a game that they can help promote. One of the questions I love to ask entrepreneurs who come on the show, because I find that to be an entrepreneur, you have to be a bit contrarian, is what is something that you think about the gaming or the esports space that other people might think is totally crazy? Interesting question. I think we have such a diverse, PopDog has such a diverse population of employees and viewpoints. There's almost no such thing as a contrarian viewpoint, at least within these walls, because there's always somebody who's thinking about it a little bit differently. We spent a lot of time, first at Catalyst, now here at PopDog, thinking about the esports ecology. I mentioned it earlier, but I do think the the concept of you know venture back act esports teams thinking of billion dollar exits there might be one or two outliers in that regard and certainly there's some teams better situated than others but as a general proposition i think venture capital is ill suited to the esports team ecology and much better suited to gaming and esports infrastructure investments and every time i see a venture fund backing an esports team i kind of cringe a little bit because i think they're in for a rough road to get a unicorn type exit sure well, uh, big news there, what, last week with uh, Gen G raising, what, I think $46 million. So I guess you're, you're a bit cautious when it comes to those type of investments. We continue to advise a handful of pro sport team owners, either individually or in their capacity as team owners. And we have a universal wait and see approach right now. We're telling all of them that there's probably better entry points in this market over the next 6, 12, 18 months. What's coming next? When you think about those next 18 months, what is the future? the gaming space look like? I think I'm excited to see what new, first of all, what new content, what new games are coming out. Uh, certainly Fortnite, although not an eSport in the traditional sense, and certainly not a franchise model that Epic's going to pursue. Always interesting to see what new games are coming down the pike, because, you know, eSports in particular, right? Tip of the spear, games that are both fun to play, fun to watch, and have a competitive ecosystem around it. 
there's not a whole lot of games that fit those categories. And so it'll be interesting to see what not not only will be the next big game, but also what will be the next sort of big esport that breaks through. And then I'm, you know, selfishly really, really excited to see some of the activations that we're going to go through from a talent perspective. Our content creators are doing amazing things. They are working really, really hard. And we have one or two, and I can't speak to them, unfortunately, by name, but we have one or two that are going to do some non-traditional types of content and on non-traditional gaming platforms. And I think that's really exciting. What does it look like when your talent are streaming? Is it primarily Twitch? I imagine some YouTube gaming today. What does what the future look like? What are you thinking about Caffeine and Mixer? Well, I would say selfishly, you know, from a portfolio perspective, we are advantaged by competition in the marketplace. And, you know, Twitch has been a great partner for most of our talent, almost without exception. And I think they will continue to be, you know, an industry leading player in the space. Having said that, having a broadcast monopoly uh, is not a good thing from the supply side. And so we are very encouraged by what we've seen from YouTube and Mixer, but in particularly from Caffeine, who's really trying to build out a different live streaming experience, not just gaming focus, although gaming will be a huge category for them. So I'll be interested to see. I think if we sit down 18 months from now, Twitch will still be the place for hardcore gamers to consume live content. But I think competition is coming and it's a good thing. And what does the future hold for PopDot? So we're going to continue to build out the management side at Loaded. That's a fairly fairly linear sort of growth plan that we have. I think the interesting part on the tech and services side, unfortunately, we can't talk too much about it because we're just pre-launch right now. But we're going to solve some of the problems that some esports teams and stakeholders have around monetization, around just making, you know, running, uh, whether you're a team, whether you're a league operator, whether you're a game publisher or a content creator, doing the things on the back end that make things easier, like sponsorship fulfillment, logo tracking, you know, uh, KPIs, reporting, all the stuff that's a pain in the ass to do, but is necessary to attract and retain sponsors. And that's the other thing. Attracting them is one thing. Retaining them is another thing. It's one of the big KPIs I push our folks. It's like, it's great to get people in the door. That's necessary. It's even better to keep them. So really want to solve some of those sort of back-end problems. Not terribly sexy, but very, very necessary. And particularly, that's where the esports space today can start to look more like traditional gaming, where it's not one-off you know, advertising opportunities, but it's more of an ongoing sponsorship model with recurring revenue. Agreed. I think you see, especially from the non-endemic perspective, right, the flood of money that's come in so far and, you know, kudos to Activision for really raising the bar uh, at Overwatch League. That money has come in to the, on the league level because it's something the non-endemics are really, really comfortable with. They understand what league entitlements look like. So if they're going to bet on a space and they know they have to be in gaming in some way, right, especially if we want to reach the young male audience, the natural gravitation, whether it's directly or through their agency, is like, okay, where can we park our money? that we understand what's happening here. And so that's why one of the reasons you've seen a lot of the non-endemics flood in on the league side. Getting those dollars trickling down to the team level is a whole different proposition, uh, whether that's revenue sharing or whether teams can create enough inventory to directly attract sponsorships on the team level. That's, you know, that's a different question. I think you'll see 
you know, the real paradigm shift is when you can sell it as a media property and not as a sponsorship entitlement. And we're still a ways away from that. What advice do you have for brands and media agencies out there that are new to the esports space, right? Or new to maybe gaming in general and thinking about, you know, is it right for me? How do I evaluate if this is a good marketing channel? I mean, you know, this is selfish, but get good advisors, right? Get people who understand that gaming from a hundred thousand foot level looks like a monolithic sheet of ice, right? It's a young man highly desirable demographic, so we need to spend against it. But if you start zooming in, you realize, again, these are micro communities. So know who you're targeting and why you're targeting and understand the community that you're trying to reach. Don't just blanket run of network, run of site. Like really start thinking about like, okay, is the fighting games community something I want to target and why? Is the League of Legends community, which is vastly different, is that a community I want to target? So really understand, doing the diligence on that I think is really helpful. The sort of like, well, I need to be in gaming, here's a few bucks, I'll buy run a network on Twitch or another platform, I'm not sure is the best way to enter the space. Obviously, you're right in the thick of it with PopDog, but if you were starting a new business in the gaming or esports or perhaps more broadly in digital media today, what would you do? Good question. Uh, I think a lot of the things we're doing here is exactly what I would be doing. Uh, if I wasn't here, there's a lot of infrastructure companies that I'm very, very interested in. We've taken a look at them from an investment perspective. The ones that are doing real data analytics, really know your customer, know your audience. Those are the ones that are going to unlock a lot of value and will be valuable as acquisition candidates, will be intrinsically valuable on their own, and will be valuable across the ecosystem to all the stakeholders. I think those are the really, really interesting ones. Josh, where can people find out more about you and more about PopDog? I'm on LinkedIn. I have a very low profile on social media, so good luck finding me. But uh, go to PopDog.com. We have lots of different case studies and uh, different ways to contact us. Well, stay tuned for more from PopDog later this year. Sounds like you guys have some exciting announcements coming soon. And uh, thanks, Josh, so much for taking the time. It's really cool to hear a little bit more about your background and the future of the esports space as it continues to evolve. Yeah, it was great being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.